Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Bibles turn to John chapter 6. We're going to continue uh, our series, That You May Believe, uh, today. And I know I said last week I was just going to pick and choose portions of, of each chapter to teach throughout the rest of, of this series, and uh, that was a lie. I'm going to teach all the verses today from John chapter 6. I didn't plan on it, uh, but God has led, kind of opened my eyes to a few things that I want to walk through this together. Um, if you're looking, if you're this kind of person who reads ahead, there are 71 verses in John chapter 6. So uh, but it, it tells the story, and so we're going to stay in that text a lot. So it's going to be very teaching heavy today. I uh, hope you're okay with that. We're, gonna, we're just going to teach through the text uh, here in John chapter 6. I'm looking forward to it. This whole series is based in the book of John. We'll go chapter by chapter, and we've just suggested that you read the chapter ahead. So maybe many of you had read John chapter 6 this week, and many of you could probably preach this better than I could today, uh, except that God has called me to do it, so just accept my substandard preaching, and then uh, next week we'll do John chapter 7, resources on our website, ways for you to read and study this together, but this whole series is built from John chapter 20, verse 31, where the author John says that he chose these things, these accounts, these stories, these eyewitness accounts are written so that you, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may, we may have life in his name. John and the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had all chosen different stories and perspectives to tell the story they're telling about Jesus. Now, they, um, it's, sometimes it feels like they contradict. They don't. They all fit together. Um, so if you're a person who loves resources, I'm going to give you one. You can write it down. It's called The Harmony of the Gospels. You can find it on Amazon. It comes in a book form. You can get a PDF of it probably somewhere online as well. What it does is uh, a number of years old. It takes the gospel accounts and compiles them into one harmony of the life of Jesus. So if you're like me and I just get lost knowing the chronology, how does all this fit together? Um, this, this is super helpful. It's been very helpful for me as I've studied and as I've over the, for, for this series, it's been super helpful for me. So I want to encourage you, Harmony of the Gospels, you can uh, Google it. It's on Amazon, I, I said, so you can find it there. But that's been very helpful for me. We're going to study this uh, this morning. And what I'm encouraged about is just over the past week, even, just hearing stories from many of you of discussions in your small group. We had an incredible discussion Wednesday night discussing uh, John chapter 5. Many of you have said that you've talked about this with your wife or your husband or some of your friends, and I love that that's happening for us because what happens here, again, is just an overflow. It pushes us into or carries us out of the week that we just had, and I'm excited that God is using it um, in that way. We're going to jump in here to John chapter 6, and John has sped up the timeline dramatically. So now we are at the end of year two of Jesus' earthly ministry and the beginning of year three of Jesus' earthly ministry, which means he is on his way to the cross. Think his senses have heightened a bit. I think his emotions have heightened a bit. He understands that from, as he gets to this next Passover, this is the last Passover before the crucifixion. And I don't know if you've, maybe you, you have a senior uh, one of your kids is a senior, or maybe they're counting down days to get married or go off to college or whatever, and you, you realize, hey, this is the last this. This is the last Thanksgiving we'll have all together. This is the, uh, this is the last whatever. Some of you are really into it. Like, this is, this is the last Monday. This is the last first Monday in January we'll ever have together. 
great. Uh, but this, Jesus, I think, is counting down the days until, until his crucifixion. I'll point that out here in, in just a bit. So if you want to, throughout this, pa- this next week, this same account is in Matthew 14, Mark 6, and in Luke 9. This account and the account of the resurrection are the only two accounts in all four Gospels, which I think the Lord's trying to tell us something about the significance of what's happening here. Leading up to it, you've got uh, Matthew gives you a, a really detailed explanation of what's happening. Mark gives you a little more chronology. John is just gonna jump right in because he's trying to tell us something. What's he trying to tell us? That Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. End of year two, beginning of year three of Jesus' ministry, From the other gospels, what we're learning is that Jesus has recently sent the 12 disciples out on their own preaching and healing ministry. It's the first time he's kind of released them into ministry. It's where he says, if you're not accepted, dust uh, the dust off off of your sandals and go in peace. He's sent them out. Uh, Miraculous things have happened. But a big thing that's happened is that John the Baptist has been arrested and beheaded uh, by Herod that we talked about last week, Herod Antipas. He has... His wife asked, he said, what do you want? I think it's for your birthday. What do, you, what do you want? And she said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And like any good husband, he says, whatever makes you happy, baby. And he goes, uh, finds him, has him beheaded and presents him. And the disciples and Jesus have actually buried the body of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, uh, Jesus, his cousin. And so this has caused uh, some emotional strife which I think should encourage us that Jesus too felt exhaustion. He felt emotions. He felt, he felt it all. As we read through this, I want you to pay attention to a few things. Um, when, when Jesus performs miracles, when God speaks and when he moves, it is meant for every single person that miracle or that movement touches. It's not just for the person receiving the miracle. It's for everyone that that, that, that miracle touches. It's, it's, he is so infinite and sovereign that he can take a singular moment and make it matter to every single person in the room. It's not that they've just come to celebrate. It's not just like it's somebody's birthday party, so then we've all come to celebrate this birthday party. The way the Lord works and moves is that at that birthday party, he has the people there that he needs to be there. And the gifts that the one person opens are meant to stir things up in other people, that everyone that's impacted and touched and around this miracle, God has a specific message and ministry to. So you're gonna pay attention to that. We're gonna walk through this journey, and you're gonna see John references the crowd, so it's the multitudes. One of the gospel writers says that Jesus had compassion on the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So it's, it's the multitudes. Then from there, we, we meet the Jews, again, the Jews, those religious leaders who were um, staunchly against the ministry of Jesus. Then John's gonna refer to the disciples. But this is any of those who had been following Jesus in his ministry for the past two years or so were called disciples. They were following. They were learners of Jesus. And then John's going to be specific for the first time, and he's going to mention the 12, which is what we know as the 12 apostles. He's going to mention them throughout this on purpose that we might realize who all is involved uh, in what is happening here. Secondly, uh, there's three Greek words for life. Uh, The Bible uses two of them, zoe and bios. Uh, Bios is more of the like, um, where we get biology. It's it's the actual scientific, natural life. Breathing, heart beating. Whenever the Bible uses that word, it refers to like the tangible kind of of life. 
The Greek word zoe refers to more of a spiritual uh, sense of life. It's more of um, like if someone is lively, that's what we're saying. They have a, a life about them. It's not from uh, birth to death. It's more, of, of, it's more ethereal than that. Biblically speaking, this is about the life only found in Jesus. It's full and it's abundant. John 10.10 came that he would have abundant life. This is that word zoe. That's important. Jesus will only use the word zoe when we speak of life uh, throughout this passage. And then finally, you're going to see here that um, like us, the people in this account are distracted by three things and they're missing Jesus because of three things. Past experiences, present circumstances, and physical senses. Past experiences are keeping these people from actually witnessing Jesus in their midst. Past experiences, good or bad. Uh, Second uh, is the present circumstances, what they are in currently, what's going on right now in their world. And then finally, physical senses, what they can see, hear, uh, taste, touch, and smell is going to keep them, distract them from Jesus. And we aren't so different from them. All right, so John chapter 6, this is, uh, it's every kid's Sunday school teacher's dream. If you get the flannel graph out, you can just do this thing. It's all the big stories of Jesus. This is the highlight reel. This is, um, yeah, this is, this is everything that we know about Jesus. A lot of it happens here in John chapter 6, which is why I think we have to read through all of it. But there's a thread that I want to pull out as we study. I'm going to show you a map, and this is going to be helpful. If, if you're like me, I, I want to see maps and see how things are set up. So this is the Sea of Galilee. And you see up on the top right is where the feeding of the 5,000 happens in this area of Bethsaida. And then you see that yellow line is where they would have gotten in the boat. The 12 would have gotten in the boat. This is where Jesus walks on water. Um, him and Kanye both walked on water. And so they, that might not apply for our crowd. But anyway, they uh, walked across where Jesus and the storm, and they're going towards the plain of Gennesaret. And then you see Capernaum up at, up at the top. You're going to hear all of these words. Then down at the bottom is Tiberias. This whole region, this is the Sea of Galilee. It's called the Sea of Tiberias. It's called the uh, Sea of Gennesaret. Because depending on where you lived, you called it different things. But we know it as the Sea of Galilee. And so we're going to start our story. We're going to start John 6 up at the top right, uh, Bethsaida, for the feeding of the 5,000. They're going to try to make their journey across that sea. Is that helpful? We'll see. All right, John chapter 6. Let's go to verse 1, and we're going to read, and we're going to read quickly to get through this. Okay, after this, so now again, years have happened. Uh, John just says after this, as if we're supposed to realize that, you know, a year and a half has happened, two years. Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. After the death of John the Baptist, after uh, the disciples had went out and preaching and healing, and Jesus has healed uh, numerous people, he went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is also called, or which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Why were they following? They saw the signs. Jesus went up on the mountain, which is kind of a misnomer. There's no real mountains in this area. It's more hills. Uh, the same way that I grew up in Florida and we would call getting onto the interstate a mountain, uh, but because we don't, that's the highest thing we know in Florida. This, this would be, they would be a series of hills. Jesus sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. This is John giving us an indicator of time and chronology. 
But it's also telling us that the Jews had a particular uh, mindset now at this time of year. In the same way that after Thanksgiving, we're focused on Christmas, or for some of you, after Labor Day, you're focused on Christmas. Um, Everything then kind of relates back to Christmas. For you, somehow, this is what John is telling us. The Passover is coming. The Passover is a celebration of when the Israelites were set free from slavery in Egypt. The 10 plagues happened. Charlton Heston set his people free. Um, we call him Moses in the Bible. Sets them free. And the final plague is the plague in, of the firstborn in which God commanded the people uh, to kill a lamb and spread the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. And if they did, the angel of death who was meant to kill the firstborn of their family would pass over. He does, and he sets his people free. So every year since then, they would celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. Uh, But they would celebrate by the eating of bread and the drinking of wine. Verse five, lifting up his eyes, this is Jesus then, and seeing, notice the senses, seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, Now, if you read the Matthew account, Mark account, or Luke account, you're going to see some different interactions that happen here. Um, Disciples are noticing that it's getting towards the afternoon. They should send the people away to go get some food. And this John tells a different account. He remembers this, that Jesus speaks to Philip first, and he asks him a question. Now, if you're like me, I've spent most of my life believing the wrong things about this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. There's two that happen. There's a feeding of the 5,000, which Jesus uses the five loaves and two fish. There's a feeding of the 4,000, in which Jesus uses seven uh, fish or loaves to feed them there. In the feeding of the 4,000, these people have been following Jesus for three or four days, and they are exhausted from the journey and had not eaten. So he sits them down and he feeds them. And what I've done, maybe you're like me, I've carried that idea of their immense hunger and the desperation into my understanding of the feeding of the 5,000. That's not true. These people have probably only followed Jesus for a couple of hours. We're going to learn later that it's not even getting that close to being dark yet. Like it's getting to maybe like maybe three o'clock, four o'clock. And so they're getting hungry, but no one's complained about hunger. No one is desperate. They haven't been out there for days. This is not a miracle of necessity. And here's why that's important. We're going to learn something. This miracle Jesus performs is not to meet a need. It's deeper than that. It's bigger than that. He comes um, to Philip in verse 5. Says to Philip, who's from Bethsaida, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse six, he said this to test him. Remember this verse. He said this to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. You ever feel that way from Jesus? He like invites us in only to test us. He invites Philip in just to test him. He knows what he's going to do. Verse seven, Philip answered him, 200 denarii or eight months' salary, Worth of bread would not be enough for each of these people just even to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but notice his question, but what are they for so many? People in the crowd, 5,000 men, closer to 12 to maybe even 18,000 people. Jesus wants to feed them. He wants to feed them. So he asks, 
where can we send them or how can we buy them uh, some bread? He asks this to Philip. And Philip says tangibly in the natural, in his current circumstance, his present circumstance, we don't have enough money for this. This is beyond the scope of what we can manage. We don't have the money. Other accounts tell us then that Jesus sends his disciples out, see what you can find in the crowd. And this is where Andrew comes back and says, well, there is a boy who has five barley loaves. John throws the word barley in there. Barley is like the bread of the peasant, of the poor people. So it's not good bakery um, bread. This is really grainy, really gritty, not the best bread. And it says bread or loaves. Uh, One commentator I read called them um, bread cakes, which sounds really appetizing, like a rice cake. That's essentially what it is. Five of them and two fish. But then he says, what are they for so many? Philip sees the natural. Philip sees the, uh, the present circumstance. And now we see here that Andrew sees the same thing. Here's what we have but there is no way that that's going uh, to work. Verse 10, Jesus says, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, which means uh, it gives us a sense of the time of year. And so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, this is uh, the Greek word eucharisto, where we get the idea of eucharist in liturgical circles for the Lord's Supper. When he gave thanks, um, he distributed to them um, as much as, as they wanted. Look at verse, uh, the end of verse 11. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Not that they needed, but as much as they wanted. Um, so a golden corral, like as much as you want. Um, I know it's not good for you, and people have touched that for all day long, but if you want to come have this bacon-wrapped steak, you can. And so this is as much as they wanted, not needed, but wanted, they had it. Um, Verse 12. Now, when they had eaten their fill, when they were full to the brim, when they were Thanksgiving meal, time to watch the lions get killed again on Thanksgiving Day, when, when that had happened, when they had had their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. I read this this past week. Commentator David Guzik says that Jesus is generous, but he is not wasteful. I love that idea. He's generous, but everything has purpose. It's not wasteful. That nothing may be lost. So these aren't crumbs. These are what Jesus had broken. They were so full, they couldn't even eat all the food that was there. So they overplanned for 18,000 people. So they gather what was left, Verse 13, they gathered them up and filled how many baskets? 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. In context, I'm gonna make, this 12 baskets are meant for the disciples. I think some uh, commentators will say it's about the 12 tribes of Israel and all these things, but in context, Jesus did this to test them. This is about them. This is about them. One theologian, F.A. Bruce, says that this whole thing is about the testing of the 12. This whole chapter is about the testing of the 12. So now they have 12 baskets of bread. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 15, perceiving, the Greek word gnosko, knowing, 
not just seeing, but knowing, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Okay, that happens. He goes off by himself. Verse 16, when evening came, so 18,000 people had eaten. And my understanding was they were desperate. It was late in the day. They had to eat before they could get home. I don't know how long it takes to feed 18,000 people, but I imagine it's not a half hour. It took a long time, and the evening had still not come yet, which tells us this was not out of desperation. This was, de- this was met out of Jesus' um, willingness and wantedness to teach his disciples something. When evening came, his disciples, we saw the crowd in the beginning of six, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat, started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. The Greek word for wind is the same Greek word for spirit. John's intentional, was blowing. We learn in other uh, gospel accounts, this wind was blowing against where they wanted to go. It's a sailboat, but it's blowing them back to where they came from. It's a contrary wind. It stirs up storms, and this Sea of Galilee was famous for the storms that would be stirred up. A storm is stirred up. When they had rowed about three or four miles, it's five miles across when they had rowed, uh, rowed about three or four miles. They're rowing, which means the wind isn't helping. They're rowing against the wind. Anyone have time in your life when you feel like you're rowing against the wind? Other accounts tell us that Jesus told his disciples, get in the boat and go across the sea. And I'll, and I'll meet up with you. So not thinking anything, they do, which means that Jesus put them in the storm. Jesus put them in the sea, knowing the storm was coming. I don't know what you think about the sovereignty of God and about Jesus, but listen, through Scripture, Jesus, the Spirit, also leads us into storms. Based on the beginning of John chapter 6, because he wanted to test them. Jesus is up to something. He sends them in probably about three in the morning. Jesus, they see Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Notice John never once says they were frightened by the storm. They weren't frightened by the wind or the waves. The first time they are frightened is when they see Jesus. It's when they are frightened. They're exhausted. They've been working hard. There's a storm billowing. This is where other gospel writers talk about where Peter tries to walk on water, right? I'm telling you, it's the highlight reel of Jesus' ministry. It's all happening here in John chapter six. Feeds the 5,000, Jesus walks on waters where Peter tries to walk on water and Peter, in his present circumstance, due to his physical senses, fixes his eyes on the waves and the wind and begins to sink and Jesus pulls him up and says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This is all happening here. They're frightened, verse 20. But he said to them, it is I, which is the Greek translation of of Exodus where God tells Moses that I am the I am. Jesus says, I am. Do not be afraid. Well, then they were glad to take him into the boat. I love that. Oh, okay, then come on in the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I think we missed this miracle a lot. Look at verse 21 again. 
Five mile wide sea, at least. They might have even been going more like a diagonal way, about seven miles. They're about halfway, three and a half, four miles into their journey. A storm happens. Jesus walks out to them. They're rowing. I can't imagine as Jesus is walking how much they're getting into the rowing, but they're rowing. Jesus gets in the boat and immediately they're on the shore. Like they just opened their eyes and they're on the shore. Half of the journey was them. Jesus gets in and they are where they were supposed to be going the whole day. Just arrive there immediately, which makes me wonder, Jesus, why couldn't you have just done that from the beginning? Like, if you can just beam them up, why did you not already do that to get them over there? Again, Jesus is teaching something. This is teaching the 12. So they immediately get uh, to the land in which they were going. Verse 22, on the next day, John's packing this in. On the next day, the crowd, we saw his disciples in 16. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw there had only been one boat there. With their physical senses, they knew there was only one boat. But they also saw that Jesus did not get onto the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. The other boats from Tiberias down towards the south came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So boats from Tiberias, probably cargo boats, had made their way from Tiberias all the way up to Bethsaida uh, the next morning. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there or his disciples, they themselves got into these boats from Tiberias and had the men take them from uh, from Bethsaida over to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So the next day, Jesus had sent them back home. They're back home. They come back hoping he'd still be there because they didn't see him get in the boat. He's not there. They get in um, some boats. They commandeer some boats, kind of like scooters in Atlanta, and they just take those boots, boats, and then they go across the sea again seeking Jesus. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea. Other accounts tell us that during this time, Jesus is still healing people. In the morning the next day, he's healing people. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus doesn't even answer. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're seeking me because of what you were satisfied in yesterday and you're hungry again. You're not even seeking me because of the miracles I perform. You're seeking me because I gave you bread yesterday and now you want more. Verse 27, Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. It's the Greek word zoe. Don't work for the food that's about your bios, that's about life, about living. Work for the food that endures to zoe, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. You remember when he was baptized by John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit descended. Verse 28, then they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God. Okay, then what do we do? If I want even better bread than you gave me yesterday, what are the works that I have to do? What do you need me to do? Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. How do you find eternal life? What is your work? Is it church attendance? Is it, is it repentance? Is it uh, doing the right things? Is it stopping your alcoholism? Is it, is it burning your old CDs? Jesus says, the work of salvation is to believe in him who sent me. 
The work of salvation is belief. Belief. Faith is salvation. So they said to him, okay, well then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Which I, what a, what a statement. I feel like he's been doing signs for two years. And 12 hours earlier, he just fed 18,000 of you with five barley loaves and two fish. And yet, they're asking, okay, cool. So why should we believe you? And if I'm Jesus, I have a very sarcastic thing to say. They ask him, what work do you perform? And then they reference past experience. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. When they were set free from slavery in Egypt, God led them into the wilderness. They crossed the Red Sea, and because of their sinfulness and disobedience, they wander in a wilderness for 40 years. But God, in his grace, feeds them, and he feeds them miraculously. Every morning they would wake up, and there would be uh, dew on the ground. There would be manna from heaven. There would be bread from heaven for them to eat every day. They were to put in baskets just for the day. The day before Sabbath, they could put two days' worth in. They would eat that on two days, but... They're referencing and saying, hey, our fathers ate the bread, the manna, in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. One of the places this is pulled from is Psalm 78, where the psalmist is referencing the story of the manna from Exodus. But he's making the point, which these people neglect to mention, the psalmist is making the point that even that wasn't enough for them. Well, what sign are you doing? Because thousands of years ago, our forefathers, our ancestors, they had a sign that seemed to be way cooler because you gave us food on one day. For 40 straight years, they were fed. 40 years. And you used what you had, Jesus. This bread came straight from heaven. So it seems like Moses might be better than you. So prove to us now that you're better than Moses, that we should trust you more than our ancestor trusted Moses. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father. He gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life, Zoe, gives Zoe to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. In reference back to, okay, 40 years, every day for 40 years, can you give us that bread? And Jesus said to them, oh, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen, right, with your senses, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not cast out. Jesus is making the point that to have faith in in me, the Father has to grant you faith. This is Ephesians 2, that faith is the gift from God. And what he's saying is the reason why you can't see me is because you, the Father hasn't opened your eyes to be able to see me yet. You see me, but you don't believe. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven. I am the bread of life come down from heaven, the bread that came from heaven, which was the manna. It's me, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last Day, that those who are truly saved will be truly saved forever. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him, this is the work of God, believes in him, should have eternal life, Zoe, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 41, so the Jews, new crowd, the Jews, 
those who are opposed to Jesus, they grumbled, they murmured with discontent about him. I know we don't do that. They did. We don't do that. Um, murmured about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, whoa, whoa, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Our physical senses, our past experiences tells us that you can't be who you claim to be because we know you didn't come from heaven. You have an earthly mother and an earthly father. This can't, you can't be who you say you are. And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves, for no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, but anyone that has seen, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. I don't have time. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has Zoe, has eternal life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life that satisfies eternally. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died. This bread, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And now it's gonna get weird. If it wasn't weird enough already, now it's gonna get weird. I am the bread of life. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no Zoe life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is the true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? But what's happening is the Jews are missing the point because of their physical senses and their present circumstance. And they're lost in flesh and blood in the same way that Nicodemus was lost in born again. Do I need to enter my mother's womb? How do we do this? In the same way that they are lost by the natural, they're missing the supernatural that's being spoken. In ways that the disciples were fixed on the natural of the waves and the storm, they're missing the supernatural of Jesus. In the same way the crowd was fixed on the natural of the bread that was given to them the day before, they're missing the supernatural of Jesus. Verse 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread or the manna the fathers ate and died, but whoever feeds on this bread, the bread of life, will live forever. Whoever finds their sustenance on the bread of life will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And then the end of it, of chapter six. When many of his disciples heard it, his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? I like the miracles, I like the healing, I like you coming to set us free, but this man, this is weird. This is hard, who can listen to this? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense to this? Literally means, does this trip you up? 
Does this trap you? Does this, does this statement ensnare you that you must eat the bread of life? Well, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, Acts chapter one? Okay, if you think that's weird, listen, in not too much longer, I'm gonna float back up into heaven. Is that gonna be weird too? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The natural is no help for you without the Spirit. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are Zoe, they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were and who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Remember, we're stepping into year three of his ministry. Some of these disciples have been following Jesus for two years and turned back saying, nope, not doing that. I thought, I thought it was the bread and the wine and the healing, and I thought it was all that. What you're telling me is I have to feast on you, that I have to give, my, I find my sustenance only in you. I'm out. And they turn back. And Jesus said to the 12, right? Now we're getting smaller. The 12, well, do you want to go away as well? Other gospel writers, this is where Jesus says, well, who, who do people say that I am? Then he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we, he uses the, the pronoun, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And poor Peter, because Jesus' response is, Jesus answered them, but did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil or acts as a deceiver. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. So quickly, Peter's mistake is that he assumed everyone saw Jesus the way he saw Jesus. But in the midst of the 12 was a man who had walked with Jesus, would continue to walk with Jesus who never once opened his eyes to the supernatural. And the betrayal of Judas doesn't happen when he takes the 30 pieces of silver. The betrayal of Judas happens as he continues to pretend walking with Jesus. He set himself up for the 30 pieces of, of silver by three years of pretending and lying and deceiving. And Peter can only speak for Peter. Peter cannot speak for the other 11 in the same way you and I can only speak for ourselves. We cannot speak for our husbands or our wives or our kids. We can only speak for ourselves. So quickly, here's the, here's the point. We all have a hunger that transcends into spiritual hunger. It, trans, it transcends physical hunger. I wrote that wrong. We have a hunger that transcends physical hunger. But the problem for us is that we are prone to seek physical hunger. Since the garden, when Eve saw that this food, this fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was good for food and a delight to the eyes and desired to make one wise, because she saw that it met her physical needs, she abandoned what she wanted from God that she might have her physical hunger uh, quenched. And we do the same thing, but we have a hunger that transcends our physical hunger. What you need and what I need will not be met 
in the natural. But we are all distracted by the natural and we miss the supernatural. And it's why we're disappointed by hard times. It's why we can't see the storm as by the hand of God. It's why we're distracted. In the midst of that boat, as the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee, you know what was in that boat? 12 baskets of bread meant for them that they could have looked at and remembered the goodness and generosity and provision and power of Jesus. And yet, they look past the bread to the waves. When the people come back and they had forgotten the miracle the day before, now they want a bigger and better miracle for Jesus to prove himself to them. The natural is never going to satisfy. So what is it for us that's keeping us from the supernatural? It's keeping us from fully believing that Jesus is who he says he is. And I know that I'm in a Baptist church talking about the supernatural, and that's already put me in a precarious position. But there's a reality of a world that's overlapping with ours that the kingdom of God has entered time and space and is now laying on top of our natural world. And we live in between the times to where what's happening is not all natural right now. It's both natural and supernatural. And there's coming a day when God will call us all home and we'll only know the supernatural and our lives will be full and complete. There will be no, no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more sin. But until then, we're in between and we're on in the layer of both. And the gift of following Jesus, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians, is that he gives us the spirit of illumination. He opens our eyes to the spiritual happening in the midst of the natural. And be my guest that for many of us in the room today, the natural is clouding our vision of the supernatural. So it could be past experiences. And that could be bad or good. Some of us, our bad past experiences are clouding our ability to see Jesus in the supernatural. You had a bad experience with church. You had a bad experience with a marriage. You had a bad experience where God did not intervene. He did not do what you asked him to do. And so because of that past experience, you are uh, missing the presence of Jesus in your midst today. It's the work of the enemy to draw your mind back to a past experience that you might miss the supernatural. Some of us, there are good experiences and we become like Uncle Rico or we uh, live high school over and over and over again because that's where the good times were. And so maybe you'll say things like, well, my old church used to or in my old church we, and that's great to learn from and to bring and we wanna cultivate some of that. But if your old church was the only place you felt the spirit of God, then you did not meet the spirit of God. Might be a good experience you had in an old church, or maybe you're so dependent upon the sal your salvation experience 30 years ago, you have nothing new to show for it. Might have been an experience in youth group that was good, but it's keeping you captive from the supernatural today. Some of us, it's present circumstances, it's our finances and politics and COVID and children or infertility or sickness or stress or work, and we're so fixated on the natural of our bad experiences that we can't see the supernatural behind. We're so fixated on the storm and the waves and the wind and the Sea of Galilee that we're, we're forgetting there's baskets in our boat. You remember? Six hours ago, Jesus did this. Do you remember? Some of us, though, it's our present circumstances of good health 
and success and financial stability that are keeping us from the supernatural. We're so dependent upon our own efforts. And finally, it's our physical senses that keep us from seeing Jesus. Because it doesn't make sense and it's not logical. Listen, belief isn't always going to be logical. It's a gift of the Lord that opens our eyes to the spiritual, the supernatural in the midst of the natural. If you'll bow your heads, close your eyes, and I'll, I'll wrap us up. We all have a hunger that transcends our physical hunger. But I wonder how many of us over the past year, six months, this past week, have been consumed by our physical hunger. We want our physical needs to be met. And all the while, we're missing the supernatural in the midst of it. That we're missing the good and sovereign God in the midst of it. That we're missing the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of it. And maybe you're walking through some health stuff with a family member or a friend or uh, somebody you've read about or heard about. Listen, that's meant to touch you. That's meant to touch you. In the same way, the feeding of the 5,000 was meant to touch the disciples. Don't run to the natural. Let's cling to the supernatural. How many of you this morning would just say that, yeah, I need, I need, I need help. I'm so distracted by the natural of my past experiences, my present circumstances, or my physical senses that I feel like I'm so far from God. I've missed the presence of God. Anybody this morning, you'd raise your hand and say, just, I need, would you pray for me that I'm, I'm missing God in the midst of the natural? Yeah, praise the Lord for your honesty and boldness. It's draining you and exhausting you. God, I thank you for this morning. Just pray that over the next uh, week, days, hours, God, that you would open our eyes to the supernatural. And our culture is in such an awful job of explaining what that is and twisting that to make good movies and books that the truth is, Father, that if we've been born again by your spirit, that we would feel more at home in the spiritual than we would in the natural. So would you open our eyes to it? Give us a glimpse of what you're doing. Peel back the curtain that we might see you in the midst. For those of us in the room this morning who our eyes are clouded um, by sin that we can't even see the supernatural, God, would you set us free and open the eyes of the blind today? In Jesus' name, amen and amen.